Oh God, so here we are, a room full of third millennials. What's this old story supposed to mean for us? Dear Father, make it clear. Make it clear for all of us. In Jesus' name, amen. So here's a question for you. Give me the answer. Is it a sin to be attractive? Huh? I mean, what did, we do, what did we just read about Joseph on the screen? Now, Joseph was well-built and handsome. Don't people like that make you sick? I mean, there ought to be a law against that. But interestingly enough, the Hebrew, the same Hebrew words describing Joseph, Moses uses earlier to describe Joseph's mother, like mother, like son. Of Rachel, it is written, now she was well-built and beautiful. As the NIV renders it, she had a lovely figure and was beautiful. So look, hey, it can't be a sin to be attractive. But is it a sin to be attracted? Now that answer needs, uh, that, that, that question rather needs a little more nuanced uh, response embedded right here in the story of me and Mrs. Potiphar. Open your Bible up with me. Let's go. Me and Mrs. Potiphar, Joseph and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. We continue today, Genesis chapter 39. I'll be in the New International Version. Any translation you have is fine with me. Don't have one at all, pull the Pew Bible in front of you. Out, and it's page 28. Genesis 39, verse 1. Here we go. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Yep. Potiphar. An Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, Woo. bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there, sold as a slave by his jealous brothers. I imagine this little 17-year-old sobbed the whole way from the purple distance view of his father's tents all the way to the big bad land of Egypt. But hey. Bad news? Yep. You've been sold as a slave. But listen, good news. You've been bought by a high official in Pharaoh's court. Because if you're ever going to be somebody in Egypt someday and you are a Hebrew slave, it is absolutely essential that you be placed in a home that has all the court intrigue of the Egyptian intelligentsia and the highest social circles. You'll be there. Whoa. Potiphar's house turns out to be a hotbed for the hoity-toity in Egypt. Apparently, God knows more about our future than we do, which ought to give us a little bit of peace in the present as we continue to live on the edge. All right, verse 2. Now, the Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered. And he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. Bad news. Your dreams about being a great leader one day have just come to an end. Phoenix, it's over. You're a slave. Adios. Good news. But your work ethic based upon your devotion to your God is going to turn everything you do into success. Oh, wow. Take a look at this, verse 3. When his master saw that the Lord was with Joseph 
and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did. Verse 4, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. We're talking about some major success going on here. Can you believe that? Reminds me of Psalm 1. I read a psalm every day. I learned this from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. So last Sabbath, I, I read Psalm 150 before coming to church and worship. So Sunday, I'm reading Psalm 1. Reminds me of Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law does he meditate day and night. He should be like a tree planted by the rivers of waters whose leaves do not wither. Everything he doeth shall prosper. Moses has intentionally embedded the story of Joseph's phenomenal success in fulfillment to Psalm 1. He's embedded it so that we know that Joseph, young 17-year-old Joseph, has already made the decision that he will be sold out in loyalty to his God, no matter what the pagan crowd might suggest. Wow. And the Almighty God honors the unfettered devotion of this growing up 17-year-old with phenomenal divine success, God will honor you too. All right, what's the next verse? Verse 6. Okay, now the plot thickens. So, Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care with Joseph in charge. He did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. And now, now, now here, come, here comes the line. And now, Joseph was well-built and handsome. Listen, Joseph is a slave and in prison for a total of 13 years. Taken into captivity at 17, he, become, he gets out of prison at 30. Three years he's in the dungeon. So we know he's 10 years in Potiphar's house. This didn't happen overnight. He grew and grew, beloved by his master. He grew and grew. 17-year-old wouldn't attract anybody. But when you're 27 and you're studly well-built as a Hebrew slave, somebody's going to notice you. And she did. Now, the end of verse 6 again. Now, Joseph was well-built and handsome. And after a while, see, some years have gone by. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and she said, come to bed with me. Bad news. Potiphar is married to Mrs. Potiphar. By the way, that's bad news for Potiphar and Joseph. Good news. She is attracted to you. Whoa. In fact, she is not only attracted to you, she wants to go to bed with you. The songwriter Billy Paul wrote a piece once entitled, Me and Mrs. Jones. 
Me and Mrs. Jones, we, we've got a thing going on. We both know that it's wrong, but it's much too strong to let it go now. Turns out that happens to be Mrs. Potiphar's favorite song, and she wants to teach it to this young Hebrew slave in her home. Learn it with me, boy. But you say, Dwight, how could that possibly be good news? Well, simple. Having sex with your master's wife could be your one-way ticket out of here to freedom. I mean, history is replete with the indentured who become mistresses and paramours with the master or the mistress of the estate, and through that sexual connection are granted eventually their freedom. Some of them became great citizens and leaders of their nations. Not a bad deal. Uh, you, and you get this with pleasure. What's not to be tempted about? But there will be no me and Mrs. Jones for Joseph, and no Mrs. Potiphar either, for the lady has terribly miscalculated. Joseph is not only big on his God, he is good to go for his God. Yeah. Pick it up, verse 8. Come to bed with me, boy. Come on. Now verse 8. But he refused. With me in charge, he told Mrs. Potiphar. My master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? What is unfolding before our astonished eyes right now on the big IMAX screen of Scripture is the anatomy of a temptation. Seven quivering, almost alive, dark, breathing components to every temptation you and I face every single day of our lives. Temptations to lust, temptations to sex, temptations to gluttony, temptations to appetite, temptations to dishonesty, temptations to self-worship, temptations to self-destruction, every temptation. 24-7 that ever comes our way has these quivering seven components embedded in it. I want you to get these seven. Get these seven, and you are well forewarned and prepared. Jot them down. Will you pull, up, pull out your study guide? Come on, let's go. You got, a, you got a new study guide in your worship bulletin today, do you? Pull it out. Let's go. The anatomy of a temptation. Come on, friendly ushers. You're the best. Let's make sure that everybody here gets one. If you didn't get you're going to want these seven, I promise you, up in the balcony here. Those of you watching, I'll get to you in just a minute. Uh, so hold your hand up. Here comes your usher, your usher friends. They'll, they'll have a copy for you. You'll want this one. And those of you who are watching, I'll put it on the screen for you. Put it on the screen for you right now, our uh, website. You'll see it there, www.pmchurch.tv. Click on that. Uh, go to that site, and you're looking for our short mini-series, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dream Coat. Title of this one is Me and Mrs. Potiphar. Can't miss it. It's a study guide right there. You got it. Let's go. The Anatomy of a Temptation. Seven dark components for every temptation you and I face. 
Number one, jot it down. Temptation is always a shortcut. Would you write that down, please? Temptation is always a shortcut. One of the most profound definitions of temptation comes from the Scottish writer Oswald Chambers. I love this. I have not read a better definition than this. Put, that on the, put it on the screen for you. Temptation, he writes, is a suggested shortcut to the realization of the highest at which I aim, not towards what I understand as evil, but towards what I understand as good, end quote. Do you get what he's saying? None of us is ever tempted with the grossly evil. <laughs> it's not, come on, I know it's evil. I don't want that. None of us is tempted that way, but we are always tempted with that which is terribly good. And the idea of I can get to that faster by going this way, whew, it's a huge temptation. It's a shortcut. Sexual temptation, by the way, is always the tempter's offer of a shortcut to what we understand is good. Come on, the Creator, the creator implanted sex within us for pleasure, of course. I want it. Never mind that the tempter hits it. The totally masking the creator's super high octane gift of sex has come with critical operating instructions, which if we do not follow, we self-destroy. We self-destroy. You don't have to be a religionist to know. You can be as secular as the world is today and still know that unregulated, uncontrolled sex can kill you. It can kill you physically. It can kill you morally, it can kill you socially, it can kill you spiritually. All of it's masked over. Now, come on, I know about this culture. So do you. Let's be honest. Our culture today, tell me if this is true. Check this out. Our culture today ardently believes, listen, that having sex with anyone at any time is our inalienable right. Our right is animals that have evolved into homo sapien. Isn't that what we believe? Of course we do. Oh, yeah, but Dwight, we don't, we don't, we don't, we don't do it with children. Well, I suppose there's some social sensibility that says let's not scar them while they're young, although there are a thousand websites today that beg to differ with that caveat. Oh, but Dwight, we, Dwight, we, don't, we don't do sex with children. We don't do sex with animals. Oh, really? A legion of websites. A legion of websites. Don't tell me that we haven't pushed the envelope as far as the envelope can go with sex. <laughs> Was it a temptation for Joseph? Of course. It says, take it out of here. Shortcut. Deadly shortcut. Number two, jot it down. Temptation is always a betrayal of trust. Always. Joseph has just responded to Mrs. Potiphar, and I don't know if you caught that in verse 8, but he said, everything my master owns, he has entrusted to me. Temptation is always, always the wooing of me to either betray my sacred trust to my neighbor or my sacred trust to my creator. Either way, temptation says, forget the trust. Number three, temptation is always repetitive, always repetitive. Look at verse 10. Look at verse 10. And though she spoke to Joseph day after day. There it is. He refused to go to bed with her or even to be with her. Wow. 
day after day. Is there anybody here? Put your hand up. Is there anybody here who does not experience the withering fire of the prince of hell day after day with every temptation we face? Anybody here, you don't experience it, you'd be dead. We know the day after day stuff. And just when, we, just when we think that hideous voice is gone, we turn the corner and there he is again. Come on, boy. I've been waiting for you. Come on, let's go. Yeah. Temptation is always repetitive. Number four, jot it down. Temptation is always location sensitive. I want you to get this one. Number four, temptation is always location sensitive. Why? What do you mean location sensitive? Well, let's look at verse 11. One day, Joseph went into the house to attend to his duties, and none of the household servants was inside. Now, who do you suppose commanded all, get out, get out of here, now, 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 get. Who commanded the house to be empty? Location-sensitive can mean that when you're all alone, you are a sitting duck for the hunter of your soul, all alone, location-sensitive. Oh, by the way, all alone with your laptop or your tablet or your smartphone which at this moment is not going to be a very smartphone to use because it will usher you into cyberspace where you will be a sitting duck for the temptation of pornography. Ever heard of porn? Location sensitive. So I'm minding my own business. And I'm reading the latest issue of Christianity Today and I come across these astounding words. Put it on the screen for you. A national survey among churches conducted over the past five years revealed that 68% of Christian men and 50% of pastors, write it down, view pornography regularly. 68% of the men in this room and 50% of the pastors in this room view pornography regularly. You can't be serious. Oh, but it is very serious. Keep reading. But even more shocking is that, whoa, chop this down, 11 to 17-year-old boys reported being its greatest users. Pfft. You serious? Yep. A friend of mine sent me uh, an article from GQ magazine, Gentlemen's Quarterly, for men. And in this article, I, I quote now, they report about a, 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 re a recent survey of a Reddit community. Those of you that are young know about the Reddit website, okay? The name of this community, NoFap. And I'm quoting, which is committed to abstaining from porn. Good for you. And has helped researchers to open the door to a better understanding of the effects of pornography in our lives. Now, I'm going to run numbers so fast by you that you're, you aren't even going to be able to jot them down in the margin of your study guide. You can try. 12% of NoFappers report watching five or more hours of Internet porn every single week. Five or more hours. 59% report watching between 4 and 15 hours of porn a week. 15 hours? What are you up? Late at night? All alone? Four. 
42% of male college students report visiting porn sites regularly. It's half of the guys here. And listen to this. Almost 50% of those in this survey have never had sex with someone else in their lives. So who are they having sex with? Fifty-three, oh, 53% of no-fappers developed their porn habit between the ages of 12 and 14, with an alarming 16% of them saying they started watching before they were 12. Mother, do you know what's happening with that computer while you're gone? Do you understand what that computer is? Is there any regulation, control on that piece of technology? Wow. But by the way, uh, location-sensitive means not only alone with your laptop, it can mean also alone with your date, alone with her, alone with him. Alone, are you? You are a sitting duck with a giant red bullseye target right over your heart. Sitting duck for that temptation. The brazen way, I, I have to say this, the brazen way some couples are sexually active with each other is stunning, as if premarital sex were a common necessary ritual to get acquainted. Hey, girl, we got to get acquainted. Let's have sex. Are you serious? This is how we get to know each other? Mother didn't tell me this. Wow. Christianity Today. Put it on the screen, please. When a woman is nursing her child, hey, we got some young mothers to be here. When a woman is nursing her child, she's skin to skin with her baby. Her brain releases a neurochemical called oxytocin, which emotionally bonds her to her child. Now listen, the same thing happens during sex. God designed oxytocin as the glue for human bonding. During a sexual release, oxytocin, along with other neurochemicals, are released and cause us to emotionally bond with our partner. So how many partners have you had? How many people on this planet are you now bonded with? I'm curious. When you watch porn... Powerful neurotransmitters such as dopamine are also released, which bonds you to the pictures. That's how it works. That's why you keep coming back. Wow. Temptation is always location sen sensitive. Whether you're alone, whether there's just two of you, or whether there's a room full partying, full tilt ahead. Number five, jot it down. Temptation is also always aggressive. <laughs> wow. Verse 12. So that day he goes into the empty house, and it's just Mrs. Potiphar and me. She caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand, and he ran out of the house. Temptation is always aggressive. You get close enough to him, you get close enough to her, you get close enough to it, and the devil will kill you. That's all he dreams of, killing you. Number six, temptation is always, oh, I love this. Temptation is always fleeable. Come on, there's some good news in this. Temptation is always fleeable. But he left his cloak in her hand and he ran out of the house. It's no wonder Paul put it this way, writing to a young pastor. 
50% of pastors apparently having a struggle with pornography. So he's writing to a young pastor, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22, flee, write the word in. He says, flee also youthful lusts and pursue righteousness and faith and love and peace along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Don't you want to live among the pure? Don't you want to be pure? Call on God. Flee. Flee that temptation. Oh, by the way, please don't ever forget the tale of two men, two young men, actually. Two young men, the tale of two men. They were faced with the same temptation to have sex with a woman who was not their wife, was a woman who was the wife of another man. And the difference between the two, I'll put it on the screen for you. Joseph fled, David fed. That's the difference. Lock that in your brain. Joseph fled, David fed. Is it a sin to stand on your roof and look at a woman bathing? Yeah, it would be if you stay there. If you're feeding on that little laptop screen, you're feeding, yeah, that's a sin. Why? It's got you. Oh, that's why this is such a good news promise. Please put this up. You know this. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. Fill it in. No temptation has overtaken you. Good news, except such as common to mankind. Anybody tempted sexually? Come on. Joseph has already been there and done that. Nothing new. But, now keep reading. God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but will, with the temptation, also make the way of escape. Write that in. Hallelujah. There is a way of escape. Every time that hideous demon comes to you and he has his sights on your heart, there is a way of escape. You will never be, you will never be cornered. You will never be boxed. You can never be besieged by the enemy, but that God himself will step into that Step into that besiegement and provide a wave escape every time. Jot this down in the margin of your study guide. Psalm 50, verse 15. Psalm 50, verse 15. Call on me in the day of trouble, God says, and I'll deliver you. Doesn't get better than that. Just call on me. You're feeling the heat? The dopamine start crying out for you. Call on me in the day of trouble, and I'll deliver you. Neurotransmitters screaming for more, call on me in the day of trouble. They don't know that you and I have turned a new page, and I am now your main man in this battle. Call on me. I will deliver you. Oh, amen is right. Amen. Temptation is always fleeable with the power God freely offers. Finally, number seven, just seven of these. Here we go. Here it is, the last one. Temptation is always against God. Always against God. Isn't it interesting that when Joseph is beguiled by Mrs. Potiphar, Joseph does not say, oh, Mrs. Potiphar, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against Mr. Potiphar? He doesn't say, oh, Mrs. Potiphar, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against you? He doesn't even say to her, oh, Mrs. Potiphar, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against me? What does he say? Jot it down. Genesis 39, verse 9. What does he say? How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Wow. Too late for David, Mr. Moral Meltdown, who fed when he should have fled. It's too late for him. But in his famous penitential prayer, the greatest penitential prayer in human literature, Psalm 51, David tells the same truth. I want you to see this. Psalm 51 Uh, Jot it down. 
David praying, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. Wash away all my iniquity. Cleanse me. Isn't it beautiful? Cleanse me from all my sin. You and I can pray this same prayer right now. Cleanse me. Come on, Jesus. Scrub me down. Scrub me down. Against you, you only. Write that down. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. I didn't sin against Uriah the Hittite. I didn't sin against Bathsheba. I didn't even sin against me. I sinned against you, you only. I tell you why this is so important to get. Because this will shift the paradigm for you and me. When we realize sin is always, ultimately, a sin against God. Which means, now this is rather blunt. And it's going to make you squirm a little bit when you imagine this in your mind. But you need to know this, which means that whatever you do, you always do it in God's presence. That's what he's telling Mrs. Potiphar. <laughs> my master. I can't do... I'm, I'm, I'm in the presence of my master. Whatever you do sexually, you always do in the presence of God. You think the Holy Spirit's gone? He's with you. The mainframe of the universe is recording the whole thing. Wow. And by the way, let's not be too hard on sex. Whatever I do, I always do in the presence of God. Anything. Doctoring my financial portfolio, nothing. Checking the answers on the exam, hey, it's just, it's just, it's just, he's there. What are you trying to do, Dwight? Scare sex out of me? <laughs> Not at all. What I'm trying to do is pray sense into you. Please. Why would you self-destroy? Why would you self-destroy when your Creator said, this can be just the perfect gift for you? Timothy Keller, the pastor in Manhattan, who deals with the skeptics day in and day out, beautifully shares how he deals with this sex question. So I'm going to put Keller on the screen for you, and I want you to listen to him as he's talking to, he's talking to postmoderns, okay? Put his words on the screen, please. Instead of telling urban dwellers, Timothy Keller, this was in an interview he gave, instead of telling urban dwellers they are sinning because they are sleeping with their girlfriends or boyfriends, I tell them, that they are sinning because they are looking to their romances to give their lives meaning, to justify and save them, to give them what they should be looking for from God. This idolatry, because that's what it is, this idolatry leads to anxiety and obsessiveness, envy and resentment. But I have found that when you describe their lives in terms of idolatry, postmodern people do not give much resistance. Then Christ and His salvation can be presented not at this point so much as their only hope for forgiveness, but as their only hope for freedom. In fact, do you know what? Embedded in the story of me and Mrs. Potiphar are not only the seeds of freedom, but they are also the seeds of forgiveness. You can get both of them out of the story because I want to remind you something. In the very short narrative of Joseph's life so far, guess what? He has already lost two coats. Two coats. His brothers stole the coat that, de that defines him as the beloved son of the father. And now his master's wife has just stolen the coat that defines him as the master slave of this household. Two coats already. 
just like Jesus, who himself lost two coats. When he came to earth, they stripped him of the coat that declares him the Father's beloved Son. And when he crawled onto the cross, they stripped him of the coat that declared him to be the master slave of the universe. He lost two coats for you and me so that out of two coats, he could weave one robe for you and me. Let me take you to the moment when he lost that second coat. John chapter 19, look at this. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they divided his clothes among the four of them. They also took his robe, but it was seamless, woven in one piece from the top. And so they said, hey, let's not tear it. Let's throw dice to see who gets it. This fulfilled the Scripture that says, they divided my clothes among themselves and they threw dice for my robe. Two coats, one robe. He lost two coats so that I might have one robe. That's why to the most sex-driven age of history in the book of Revelation, he speaks words that are slightly embarrassing, but he knows to whom he speaks. That's why in the book of Revelation, in making an offer to those of us who have a sexual history we wish we did not have, Jesus speaks in Revelation chapter 3, verse 18, therefore I counsel you to buy from me white robes to clothe you and to keep the shame of your nakedness. I know your sexual history, but to keep the shame of your nakedness from being seen. I'm going to wash that all away. I'm going to wipe it all away, and I'm going to drape over your shoulders my white robe. The purity with which I lived my life, the purity with which Joseph lived his life, with my robe, you can live the same pure life as we did. I give you my white robe. Isn't that something? His white robe of grace for my nakedness of guilt. I'll switch it. Let me cover your nakedness, Dwight. The history's gone. It's gone. You're in my robe now. Hey, boy, stay in this robe. What he said to the woman taken in adultery, neither do I condemn you. But go, 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 whoa, whoa, whoa. Go and sin no more. Let go. Call on me and I'll deliver you. But let it go. Let her go. Let him go. Call on me and I'll deliver you. I have a new robe for you. Hey, does the gospel get any better than that? No. It's Jesus for you. The best news in the universe every time. Confronting my worst news, his best news. Take your, take your, your connect card out, will you please? I want, I want us, please, to respond to this teaching. You got a connect card? It's in your worship bulletin where you got your study guide. Pull it out. Let me get mine. Guess we're delighted to have you today. All you do is reach into the bulletin. You'll have the same connect card as we have. The ushers are now getting ready to receive these cards from us. Put your name on the front, an email address. Particularly, there's going to be a chance, that, an opportunity for you to ask for something. So put your email address. Make sure it's legible. And turn the card over. My next step. What can I do? Having read the story of Joseph, as, as it turns out, 
of Jesus too. My next step today is number one, I would like to exchange the filthy, filthy rags of my guilt for the white robe of His grace. Is there anybody here that cannot put a check mark there and say, hey, I want it. Out. Take my rags. Give me your robe, please. Box number two, I would like to learn a way to clothe my life with Jesus every new day. If we have your email on the front side of the card and you check that box, we will send you through cyberspace within 48 hours a way for you to put the robe back on every single day. It will bless you to the max. You want to be under the cover of the robe for the rest of your life? Just put a check mark there. We'll, we'll send you the web, uh, a link. Number three, pray for me. I want to be sexually pure like Joseph and like Jesus. Yeah. I want to be sexually pure like Joseph and like Jesus. I know. Me too. Me too. Now look at beautiful baptism, five kids just a moment ago. That was just beautiful, wasn't it? <laughs> this is the age to start, guys. But if you've not been baptized yet and look at you at your age, you can make the same new beginning. Next box over, information on baptism. You put a check mark there. Nobody's baptized next Sabbath, but we will be in touch with you, and we can start thinking about your baptism. Why not? Start over. Put the new robe on. Wash the past away. Start free and forgiven. You can. Put a check mark. I want information on baptism. We'll be in touch with you. I want to pray with you. I want to pray with you right now. Oh, God. This is the gospel. Oh, this was a lot of bad news, but thank you for the gospel embedded in me and Mrs. Potiphar. Because there never, there never is a temptation or demon so strong that we cannot be set free. Never boxed in so tightly that we cannot escape. It's all wrapped up in Jesus. Call on me. I'll deliver you. I have the robe for you. And so, Father, for all of us, I humbly pray, the white robe of His purity, cover our nakedness and send us forth from this place with new hope and new peace and new joy. In Jesus' name, let all the people say, Amen and Amen. I take an extra moment with you and let you know how grateful I am that you joined us in worship today. I hear from viewers like you across the nation and literally around the world, and I'm thankful. If you'd like to explore further what we've just shared, I hope you'll visit us at our website. It's an easy one to remember, www.pmchurch.tv. We're the Pioneer Memorial Church here on the campus of Andrews University. So that's www.pmchurch.tv. Click onto that website. And you'll be able to listen to a podcast of this material. You can download the presentation. You can print off the study guide. You may have a special prayer need that you wish to share with our prayer partners. Or you may wish to partner with us through a personal donation to help reach this generation with the everlasting good news of Christ. If you'd rather talk with someone, call one of our friendly operators. Here's the toll-free number, 877, and then the two words, His Will. 877-HIS-WILL. In the meantime, may the grace and peace of Jesus be yours every step of this adventurous way.